are listening to Adjective New Music's podcast, Lexical Tones. I'm your host, Rob McClure. Ambitious, exuberant, warm. Megan Enan is a mezzo-soprano on a mission to change the world through the commissioning, performance, and proliferation of new music. Well, thanks for being on the podcast, and uh, longtime listeners will know that this is not the first time you've actually quote been on the podcast um we've, pre- we've previously featured uh your performance of garrett schumann's piece bound yes um, i love that piece which <laughs> uh if you want to go back and listen to it is on episode 37 um so yeah it's it's great to have you here and talk to you about uh some of the other uh projects you've been doing and other composers you've been working with um so let's you you sent me uh five five pieces that we're going to listen to today and kind of talk about and uh, let's proceed a little bit chronologically at least we, until we get to the most recent pieces and uh, this first piece that we're going to talk about is a recording of your performance of uh, this Schubert work um, called Stanchion. Mm-hmm. Stanchion, uh, yeah. yeah. Stanchion. Uh-huh. Uh, German. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and he, he has a couple uh, pieces by that same name, correct? So this yes. is this is D920. Oh my God, he wrote so much music. Right? Um, <laughs> so uh, for how engaged in new music that you are, this recording was a little bit of a surprise to me. And not that it should have been, but, uh, you know, just just personally, uh, for a long period of my life, I was deeply into modernism and Baroque music mm, yeah you know two wildly different things and i'm wondering if that's if that's kind of your case too or are you just like you you kind of will sing and and sing and like all music yeah i i love that like i like all kinds of music mm-hmm. um that i think i kind of tossed that in there because i thought you know it's important to to kind of share with people that even though i specialize in contemporary classical music for the voice that i love to sing all time periods of music mm-hmm. and for the longest time really was produ- pr- pursuing the traditional path in in traditional opera path so i went all through graduate school thinking that i would be following that kind of trying to get to the met um singing mm-hmm. the singing the war horses kind of standard rep and i always had a love for contemporary classical music and kind of knew a little bit more about it in undergrad. Like I was starting to kind of get involved with um, knowing Libby Larson or Jake Heggie at that point in time. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. and then in graduate school, kind of having all of – having my eyes opened to the, the amazing uh, things that are going on in contemporary classical music. And so I – while I was in Baltimore because I finished my master's at Peabody and – I stayed in Baltimore after that, and I was pretty much doing the kind of 50-50 traditional rep and new music rep career. And then when I moved back to Iowa, which is where I am right now, I mainly get calls for for new music rep. And so I love to sing all sorts of music and traditional rep, et cetera. uh, But I think that more people know me as a new music singer. So I I like to use that to kind of further my, my influence in new music for the voice, but that doesn't mean that I only sing that. Where does Schubert kind of fit into your, to your musical world? 
Oh. <laughs> where where does Schubert fit into my musical world? I think that singing Schubert and singing all sorts of art song and leader and chanson, etc., um, is about is about understanding the different characteristics of the writing in that time period and making sure that I'm using my vocal technique to accurately portray that composer's intention. And that works mm -hmm. across time periods. So there are stylistic elements that are really important to, to do in Schubert's vocal writing that are different than what contemporary composers are asking me to do. And I want to make sure that as a vocalist, I can turn that off and on at will, that I can, I can know that and I can approach their writing, understanding exactly what they're looking for in a vocal sound and being mm -hmm. able to faithfully produce that. Yeah, I I listened to a few other recordings of this piece uh, with other ensembles and with other singers, and I have to say, your voice makes this piece sound so effortless. <laughs> Thank you. Clear <laughs> and easy. High praise. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> well, I'm just it it I as I said, I listened to a couple other performances, and there, it's like your voice was built specifically for for this type of singing not that it's built in like it, for any you know what i'm saying yeah um you do it really well that's Thank what i'm you. saying that's really nice of you i really appreciate that <laughs> so i mean is that uh obviously there there's a lot the achieving that effortlessness i imagine has a lot of internal stuff going on that is not so effortless um and and that just you know speaks to your to your talent and and effort and dedication to the piece but also is there something about Schubert in particular that makes that easier hmm uh, Schubert is just masterful at writing for the voice i mean you can't have an output like that and not learn lots and lots and lots about writing for yeah. the voice and so that particular it is written is kind of specifically for contralto, and I'm not a contralto by any means, but it fits into that contralto mezzo, you know, a sound, and and where it sits in the range is is particularly great for what I like to do, where my sweet spots of my voice are. Yeah, and okay. and Schubert knows that, right? So it's like the key is is great, the, you know that. Um, and then this version that I was singing is with a male chorus and with a small ensemble, and you can hear, you can hear how the texture of that, even though I've got something like you know, 40 voices behind me singing. And when we're singing together, it's it's set up in a way that the texture is not overwhelming me. And I never had to, you know, I never felt like I had to push against that or push yeah. to be heard above that. And that is part of how it gets written into the music. That is really, you can tell the composer craft when the texture is already nice to you as a performer mm -hmm. yeah. and not something that you're like, okay, I'm going to have to really talk to my collaborators on this and say, please, please. I know that it it's asking a lot for everybody to bring it down here so that I can like come out over this texture. But when it's already in the repertoire like that, then you're like, oh, thank you composers. <laughs> like, <laughs> like you really, you really like us as singers. <laughs> and I try to, you know, 
whenever I see composers doing that currently that I work with, I try to tell them and thank them. Thank you so much for thinking about what my instrument does and not making me try to be a different instrument in this context. You know, when you're really like any instrument, I mean, that's any instrumentalist can talk to you as a composer and say like, Oh, thank you. You really understood what I do as an instrument and, Uh and voices like that too. And one of the things that I usually talk to composers about is, is texture within the rest of the ensemble, making sure that I'm not fighting anybody and for words to come out clearly, or if you're putting us all in the same area of, or same range, I suppose, then, Mm -hmm. then that's really difficult. And it doesn't allow me to do some of the cool stuff that a voice can do because I'm only working on sheer volume. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Yeah. I, and I'm, and I think texture definitely, uh, certainly plays a part in that. I also wonder, is it something about the way he sets certain, um, text sounds in Mm. particular ranges? Oh, definitely. Does that also, yeah. Yeah. And you can hear how when composers use, use text that they really have spent some time with and they decide what's special about a certain word and then they set it that way, it really makes a piece so much more magical. You just have that moment where it's like they set, they set the word uh, like Licht or um, Goldness or something like that or like light and golden and, and then make, make it in a place of your voice where you can put light into the voice or you can put a golden yeah. sound into the voice. And audiences don't always know that that's that, that direct connection between text painting and what you're doing vocally, but they can certainly feel it and hear it. And they're just like, it's just so nice. You know, <laughs> they yeah, just right. like, they, they'll <laughs> connect with it. They may not be able to pick it up like word for word, what, like the work that you're putting into it, but they can certainly hear it and feel that moment when you've spent the time and the composer spent the time connecting to the text in that way. So who is the, who's the choir that, or who's the ensemble that you're performing with in this recording? This is the Des Moines Gay Men's Chorus. And this was actually quite a pleasure to sing with them because the director of this is one of my former voice teachers. Mm -hmm. And it's been a while since I sung for her or with her. And, and so when she asked me to do this gig, I was like, of course, hands down, I want <laughs> I want to be there. And they're just an incredibly fun group of guys that mm-hmm. that sing in this chorus and and just really care about it. They love choral music and it's infectious to be around a group like that and to make music with people that really just want to be there and and enjoy the music. Awesome. So we're going to listen to this now and Say it for me again. <laughs> yeah, sure. This is Schubert's Stenchen. Thank you. 
What excites you about new music uh, where it can be kind of frightening to other performers? Sure. What, how, how, does it, how, how does it connect with you? Definitely. I, I think of myself as an early adopter when it comes to classical music. So where classical music is going right now, that's something that I'm willing to be at the forefront of that and try things out. And then hopefully be the person that's gesturing to other singers, other musicians uh, and saying, you know, singers, instrumentalists, composers, everybody saying like, hey, come check this out. I want to like I want more people to know about this. I'm willing to be a guinea pig for a lot of those sounds, full well knowing that not everything is going to be something that I sing for the rest of my days, but I Uh get to do it once or I get to do it a bunch of times. And then hopefully if it's something that we all feel really invested in growing a project, then you sing it all the time and hopefully enough performances and recordings so that other people start to kind of get on board with it. And that part's exciting to me. And I feel like I know my voice well enough, always learning, but know my voice well enough to be able to work with composers and say, this is how I'd like for you to write for this voice type and how I'd like for you to write for me. I'm able to communicate with them about those kinds of things such that I'm helping to bring what I think is a is idiomatic vocal writing into the field and and then being able to pass that along. So I, I think of myself as being that person who wants to try it out and is willing mm-hmm. to then pass that those pieces, that information along to other people. And I'm, I, I work with people that listen to me when I say, oh, that's, that's not something I'm willing to do with my voice. You know, so I'm not in a position to be, hmm. when I work with other people, I'm not in a position in which I have to do everything that somebody else says. And mm-hmm. sometimes that part is scary for other, other performers. They don't want to take on new music because they feel like the thing that they they don't know how to do yet or they're unfamiliar with or they're uncomfortable with a technique like that is being is being forced onto them rather than something that they're willingly choosing. And mm-hmm. sometimes there's still a little bit of misinformation floating around about new music being bad for the voice, but it's really not. I mean, it's it's about making sure that you approach that with your best technique and – so if you have bad technique, you know, uh, Strauss isn't going to save you either. So like, <laughs> um, <laughs> like, so it's it's really about feeling confident that I, I'm taking on things that I'm willing to do rather than mm-hmm. feeling like I'm put in a position where I have to fulfill somebody else's sonic idea without having any vocal agency of my own. So as kind of an early adopter, what is the thing right now that you're kind of seeing that you're really excited about? That I'm really excited about. One, I'm going to start with one of my soapboxes and then I'm going to move to why it's exciting. (laughs) So one of my soapboxes is that I hear it's very trendy to have singers essentially just make like, I don't know, high-pitched dolphin sounds in in new music. Um, (laughs) Or, or as you know, all my various friends, as Amanda DeBoer Bartlett like, ca- like calls it, as sexy baby voice. Like when you're when you're kind of making these like very, 
you know, unsupported, um, high-pitched sounds. And as a mezzo, obviously, that's not something that that I even do well in the first place, or that's not my calling card of what mm-hmm. I think my voice does well. But that is to say that that's been trendy for a while, but I'm starting to see composers move away from that and think of the voice more holistically and and get away from that as like what voice should be in new music, I'm very heartened to hear composers readily uh, being inspired by their by their influences outside of traditional classical music, uh, mm-hmm. even new music. And so folding that in, which also means that for the voice, I get to use my voice in lots of various ways, and they're willing to hear the voice as more than just dolphin sounds or a a a secondary flute or something like that. I when I see when I see singers on stage being an auxiliary flute or or somebody hands them a tambourine because they they just wish they had a percussionist with three arms or something, then mm-hmm. I then I'm sad because we don't have a a deeper understanding of all of the things that a voice can do beyond here be a be a percussionist that you aren't trained to do, you know. So do you think that right now, um, since we since we did go through that period where it was kind of trendy to to, you know, use the voice as a almost almost akin to like, oh, well, I could do this with fixed media or something, but I'm going to I'm going to put it in a live person. Do you think, however, that period of kind of experimentation has gotten us to the point where uh, that those kind of techniques, which, you know, the first time you do anything new, it's it's not going to be very well refined. It's going to be exploratory. So is is it now that, you know, you can you can bring in all of these techniques, which the voice can do. But now, since we've done it a little bit, it's we can use it in a more idiomatic and artistic way as opposed to just, well, here are some sounds. Of course. Yeah. So I, I don't begrudge us having that trend at all in, in new music. And I'm just excited that that trend that we're moving quickly or more quickly, you know, in my experience, it's not like I've been doing this forever and ever. I am. So to see in my own career that over that time we're bringing in more of these different vocal sounds is really heartening. It's really exciting mm. rather than than being, you know, if I spent an entire spent an entire career only in that one trend, then it would then I wouldn't be as excited about being an early adopter because it wouldn't feel like we're exploring new things and experimenting with vocal sounds. It would feel like just another like one trick pony vocal sound kind of thing. Yeah. So I'm, you know, and I, and I want, if you hear that as a composer, that you want that super high floaty soprano sound, please don't not write it, you know, just understand that that's probably still part of a trend and, and write it. And then also write another vocal sound some other time. <laughs> you know, like yeah, it, yeah. if you only want that, you know, that kind of limits the, you know, multifaceted nature of your writing. Right. Right. So let's actually talk about another uh, piece that you sent, and I th- I think this is a perfect time to talk about it because it is uh, it's a it's a little bit of everything for the voice, <laughs> and this is uh, your 
uh, performance of John Cage's aria. Yes. And um, for anyone who has never seen the score, it's a graphic score complete with color. It has text from I don't know how many different languages. I think a lot. It's seven plus nonsense. Oh well, seven languages that includes like nonsense syllables that sound like they could be part of that language. <laughs> right. Yeah. And it doesn't give any specific pitch or rhythmic information. And it's, I, I think I said it's graphic. Uh, to look at one page, it kind of looks like just, um, you know, of course, the, uh, the, the trope is that, oh, well, you know, my, <laughs> my five-year-old daughter could have drawn that or something. But <laughs> then you have a very talented five-year-old daughter. <laughs> right? Yeah. I have a daughter who knows seven languages yeah. <laughs> and <laughs> can be creative and knows how to color. Anyway. Yeah. Um, so how does I, – I, I have taught this piece um, in various classes. And I'm just wondering from the performance uh, standpoint, how does one prepare this work? That's a great question. That – I recently went on tour um, and did this piece. So I did this piece multiple times in November, uh, October and November, actually, and would was working with undergrad voice students a lot of times. And they would come up to me afterwards and they're like, what does that even look like? <laughs> you know, and, <laughs> and I would say and then they we'd go like we'd look through the score together and they're like, how do you even start preparing this? And so I would grab another piece of music from the, the book and show like put them next to each other and I'd say okay well these these essentially at a certain point start to look the same they're telling me the same information just in different mm. notational elements so I start going through and I say okay the color is the type of tone quality that I'm going to use and now that I have a better understanding of how to shape and color all of those tones to make a sound like that, then that's a lot of information that you need to make this piece really come alive if you're not as familiar with making very different vocal sounds, then mm-hmm. this piece would be very boring. <laughs> like, the point is to have that kind of um, being able to shape your articulator so that you're making an incredibly nasal sound right next to something that's going to be a jazz sound or right next to something that's going to be this Marlene Dietrich low contralto sound, you know, that mm-hmm. you have you have facility within your own production to make those. And then just following the line tells you where to be in the range. And I don't do it based off of any specific pitch material. I kind Mm -hmm. of gravitate towards certain areas of my voice for things. So I'll kind of come back. So I, since I perform it pretty regularly, I'll be in roughly the same area of my voice for each one of those things, each one of the, a different one. So like the coloratura lines tend to be in the same kind of starting pitch range for me right, just because yeah. I'm like, oh, that's where that feels. And and so I do it that way. Um, and then I have marked in, the, in my own score where I believe the musical phrases are so that I'm creating a sense of pacing for the for the rhythmic element and the time element that I'm creating this sense of pacing to to drive and then relax a little bit but that also fits within a larger structure so that you're saying over the course of this whole piece there should be this push and pull but I can kind of map out where I want those to be and making sure that I get the text kind of fast enough in certain areas so that it flows and it feels like it's contributing to that pacing so that mm-hmm. when I take the breath and 
slow things down and there's a big empty space on the page, that's my time to just also in performance say to myself, Megan, relax, take a little bit longer than you think you should. That feeling right. of like count to five or something like that. <laughs> like, <laughs> and and when it's not specifically notated count to five, you have to have some authority within yourself to say, I should wait this long. I'm not going to rush this. I'm going to like let there be a little bit of space here so that the next push-pull feels like a push-pull rather than just like yeah. sounds all at once. And that that would be less thoughtful of a performance. Yeah, you just uh, – uh... The the whole rest thing. I mean that I, getting performers to actually rest for it's the hard. intended it's duration hard. so hard sometimes. Well, so hard. My and, trio does this uh, does a Schwantner piece, and there's lots of like five seconds, you know, eight seconds, like written into the score, and those seconds yeah. are like milliseconds when you're performing it, but you feel like you've done ten seconds, but you're like one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Okay, good, go. <laughs> Next yeah, part. exactly. Yeah. <laughs> it's hard. So you really have to like we'll set a timer sometimes just to be like this is how long an actual 10 seconds feels when we are in performance mode. And Right, yeah. Just to kind of get used to that feeling when you have adrenaline to come back and be clear with your with your internal clock is yeah. it can be challenging. <laughs> <laughs> what were the I mean the the piece kind of uh allows the performer to come up with uh, several non-sung sounds. Mm-hmm. And what were, what were some of yours that you came up with that we'll hear? Uh, so I use, I do this, I do this piece in two, two versions. Um, this is the version where I make all of the uh, extra vocal sounds by myself. But I also do this as an audi- audience participation piece, like shout out Ooh. to Tim Monroe, who like taught me it that way. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> So, so it's, so whenever you see those little black squares, you're supposed to make a sound, an extra vocal sound essentially. And so I will often do this. If I'm going to do this for an audience that, that has no, you know, John Cage experience and John Cage means nothing to them. You know, Mm -hmm. I love to do it as an audience participation piece with those audiences in particular, because I'll point to them and we'll practice it beforehand so they get used to making lots of sound. And then I tell them how many times we're going to do it in the piece because they get people get nervous about having to make sound at a performance. They don't want to feel yeah. like they're on the spot. And so we practice beforehand. And then I point to them when I'm doing the piece and they make the sounds. And I tell them that I want it to start off like kind of quiet so that they feel like they can ease into it. And then I tell them how many we're going to do. So if they're kind of counting, then they know we're going to get much louder. And then at the end, I want y'all to just like go wild with it. And they're like, and people love it. <laughs> so, like, so I love doing it that way. But when I'm doing it just myself, kind of depending on the audience is I'll add, I think I do like foot stomp, hand clap. I do like a bird caw kind of sound. Um, I do like, I do, um, there's like a, oh no, uh, there's a like gasp in horror. There's kind of like a um, overtly sexual like moan sound <laughs> that happens. Like uh-huh. so, um, it kind of, and then it kind of depends. I I try to give myself some freedom with those two. If they're if I'm in a space where I can do something fun or funky with the space for those, then I'll try and do that as well because that's all part of it. Is that performing John Cage aria is 
similar in a lot of ways, but is different every single time as, you know, he would have wanted it. So, um, so it's different every time. Plus it's a, like, you know, John Cage is all about, it's about the fact that you're in that space, listening to those sounds and that's really special. And so incorporating the audience or incorporating the space into those extra vocal sounds is is quite enchanting in a certain way because it really points out like we're here in this moment and this is actually what's really special about this not only that i'm just making a whole bunch of wild sounds you mentioned um that you know you might encounter audiences where john cage kind of means nothing to them uh what is john what does john cage mean to you <laughs> um kind of going off of what i just said there's a there's a little um talking from the stage element that I tend to do before I present John Cage Aria that I think is really important. And I say that I I kind of lead into it with, have you ever known any, like, have you ever known any, like, identical twins or little kids that have, like, a secret language that only they share? Mm -hmm. And people Mm -hmm. always laugh and smile. And I say, well, you know, sometimes new music gets a bad rap because, because people feel like it could be a secret language that they're not invited into. And I say that... Part of my goal as a musician is to make sure that I'm creating a secret language with you, specifically with you in this place right now. And part of that is inspired by John Cage because I think that that performative moment is so special and so unique that, yes, we record them, but it doesn't capture that feeling that you have when you're there physically experiencing someone take a breath, make sound, and you react to it. And your reaction to it also shapes that experience fully. So that part is incredibly important to me. And part of the thing that like jazzes me up the most about singing and performing is, is that liminal space interaction between performer and audience. And why I prepare to get ready for that is because I want to be fully invested in that moment and creating that, creating that shared secret language together. And I think that's what John Cage has inspired me to think about is is how to make moments special with sound and with a presence and and so that that's probably not necessarily what everybody thinks of when they think John Cage but that's particular to me and how I approach I approach his writing and approach his his like thought leadership or his writing like more generally about music mm-hmm. is just like what how you interact with music in a given moment in time is very special and i want i really love to kind of get at that in performance awesome let's listen to it this is john cage's aria Yeah. 
I love that you're teaching it, that you're teaching Aria to your students. I taught um, last year when I was still uh, teaching in China. Mm-hmm. I taught a uh, graduate seminar on the New York School of yeah. uh, Composers and Visual Artists. Yes. And oh um, so we did we did the the four uh, main composers, and then I think we did twelve uh, painters. Love that. And yeah, it was so cool. I want to take your class. <laughs> I would love to teach it again here at Ohio. I just, I, the the problem is, is like, I was, I think I was able to do it in China just because, you know, there, there was no class mm-hmm. on American painting in the fifties mm-hmm. and, you know, and there was no faculty who was th- that uh, experienced with that particular thing. Now, if I brought it here, what I would want to do is teach it collaboratively with someone from the art department Gosh. who like really knows their stuff. Although I have to say, I loved teaching the painting See? lectures, you know? It's so like, great. Yeah. Yeah. So. <laughs> you know, I would love he- teaching that and like that. And, and I, I, I'm a big fan. Like, obviously this is a little bit later, but the New York school of poets as well is like kind uh-huh. of is, is also my jam. And so I'm like, yes, I would love being in that. Just being like, I want to talk about this all the time. <laughs> I know. I know. Yeah. It was, it was a great class. And, um, I actually had a Chinese student perform Aria awesome. uh, we, as part of the, as part of the class, uh, they all had to pick a piece from, uh, one of the New York school composers. And if they were a composer in that class, they had to write a piece using, um, you know, techniques that either Cage or Feldman or Brown or uh, Wolf would have uh, would have done. And then we did a performance. And she was so terrified of that. <laughs> she did a great job. I have to say she did a great job. But uh, yeah, she was she was just uh, terrified. And I... Oh my and goodness. I, and, it, and it was like, you know, there... In a way, I was like, there are no wrong answers here. Yeah. I mean, you know, like, oh, okay, so you you didn't get up to the pitch you wanted to. It's it's okay. Right. You right. know, as long as you're as long as you are approaching the piece in the in the manner like you're committed to it, and that's what I stress with her. You just have to commit. Definitely. If if you don't if you don't commit, it's really gonna seem like for you're, sure you're afraid of the piece. <laughs> Yes. And I, oh my gosh, I love graphic scores for that reason. It just, and I think one of the things that I really like is being kind of a theatrical performer. Those things um, really mesh in how I approached music in the first place. And so mm-hmm. having graphic scores allows me to kind of get into that side. You know, it's very cool. So I, I yeah. actually have a lullaby that was just written for me, Jason Barabba from um, LA. Uh, wrote one because he heard me do John K. Jari and he's like, hey, I want to try oh. writing a graphic score for you. Would you be interested? And I was like, yes. <laughs> like, <laughs> let's do it. And it's so much fun. I just wish, like, you know, I wish composers allowed themselves to kind of play around that way more often too. You know, you don't only mm-hmm. have to have one type of notational style. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, you just, was that part of your, uh, your lullaby series that you, you just kind of, um, it's actually completed or was that something else? It's actually after that because he, he, um, I commissioned all those lullabies and then I, um, and so all of those lullabies for the project have been like, had been turned in 
And and he said, I know that you have this thing coming up and I'm doing the these lullabies on Oh My Ears. And he said, can I write for you for that as well? And he's like, no pressure. You don't have to do it. And I said, of course. Yeah, let's do it. You know, add to the more the merrier. <laughs> so, <laughs> Well, and you kind of have a few different uh kind of solid recital programs that you can you can take on the road and one of those is called uh this world of yes so can you tell us a little bit about that program because i believe we're going to hear one of those pieces which is jessica rudman's yes definitely uh so this world of yes came out of uh of of a twitter friendship so alan tyson and i uh, met on Twitter many years ago and start and would meet in person at like new music gathering and things like that. And I think the new music gathering in Baltimore, he was like, we should play something together. <laughs> and I was like, okay, okay. <laughs> right. <laughs> sure. I, I, I would love that. What do you want to do? And, and then that kind of turns into let's email about this. And now this is kind of becoming more and more real. And mm-hmm. This world of yes turned into, oh, we want to work on something together. Oh, I happen to have these pieces for like voice and saxophone. And he and he actually helped commission some of these pieces. And now we have this kind of fully fledged program that was all written for us. And it's been very cool. So we toured that. That was the tour in November. And this world of yes, the title actually comes from a piece that Chelsea Williamson wrote for Alan that has the Walt Whitman poem, um, live in, live in your love, I think is the poem. And then it, with brightness of peace is the P is the peace title. And then there's a line in it because she asks that the poem be read before he plays the piece. So originally Mm -hmm. when we were doing this, there's a line in there that's called this world of yes. And I thought, well, that's a, I love that as a title for this recital project. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it really helped us focus our ideas around the duality of choices is that when you make a choice in life that does close some doors while you're opening other doors and you have to be okay with that, but you're saying yes, you're saying yes to those doors that have opened even while you're saying no to some of the things that you've closed and, Hmm. and that that can be a complicated feeling, you know, to say yes to certain things means saying no to other things as well as this one of the pieces that makes up the a bulk of the first half of the program is called is called Season Song by Michael Young and it's spring, summer, fall and winter and really about going through the seasons of your life. You can't have all of them at once. You know, we experience the seasons in this in this cyclical nature and to have fall, you have to have summer and then to have winter, you have to have fall and the the way that you look at that is really important, I think, into to enjoying the experience of that life, you know, of of our lives. <laughs> so this uh, this piece by Jessica Rudman, who was just a guest on yes. the last season of the podcast, episode fifty nine. We're having a lot of uh, composer callbacks. Yeah, I love that. <laughs> um, so her piece is called Epilogue. Uh, tell tell me about this piece. Yes, Epilogue. And I won't be able to remember the text right off the top of my head, but epilogue is, let me say, the way that I introduce this piece when we're performing it is that that I say, this is how I imagine, how, how I imagine we approach the end of our lives in these temporary bodies that we get to fill while we're here on earth, that 
through this text, it's about kind of what happens when we when we lose this specific body composition and like how our energy mm-hmm. then kind of fills out the rest of the world. You know, what happens when we no longer need to experience the world in this way? And and I tell audiences that I really love the way that Jessica approached this in the writing because I think that that is a text painting of a certain sort that she deconstructs the text. She deconstructs the words. So you'll hear like these stutters at times and you'll also hear an elongation of a consonant sound and then you hear these various things. So it's um, it's really about what, you know, I take that to mean what is it like when I no longer need language, you know, in the same way that mm-hmm. we know it now? What is it when I no longer need notation the way that I need it now? How is that energy still in the world? This sounds very woo-woo. I totally get that. But I love I love <laughs> thinking about that. And and I think that um and I think that that's part of it is that these two voices, the voice and the saxophone, these two voices working together to kind of explore these sounds of what it's like when the energy is just like pouring forth into the world is very cool. Um, so yeah, that's kind of I wish that I was more eloquent on the subject, but um that I I really love how Jessica, took this as a simple concept with these two voices and deconstructing the the words as such and and it came to be such a poignant piece so whenever we perform Mm -hmm. it people are like really moved by just this simplicity of it yeah well let's listen to it this is jessica rudman's epilogue and this is uh you and alan tyson correct yep
Something that I didn't know about you, but I just learned be- through kind of doing a little research on your website, is that you are a fellow podcaster. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so what's your what's your podcast called? Uh, so I I started a podcast last year called Studio Class that is primarily geared towards female singers, uh, but is really for everybody. It's just nice to have you know a very specific audience in mind when you start anything, so that you make sure that uh-huh. you're using the right. You know, you're using the voice you want to use, and it's it's geared towards n- uh, all of the things that I feel like I didn't have time when I was in studio class, or I don't have time in my current studio class to cover. <laughs> and so it's and it's kind of an outgrowth of this blog that I write called The Sybaritic Singer, and it covers similar topics. So it's about kind of f- loving the business side of your music career. And, you know, the, the scaffolding that that is, like the music is the building, your your music career is the scaffolding around that. You have to kind of use them to, to build and make it happen. Mm-hmm. And and so the, the podcast was supposed to just be a promotional podcast for this popular series that I write called 29 Days to Diva. And then I decided that I really liked doing it <laughs> and, like, and I wanted to keep it going. So I've, I have sketched out, it kind of took a, a break because, and as a, I think an important side note, I, um, as a lot of people may have like read, I kind of hit some burnout pretty hardcore in this last year and was really trying to power through it. And, and the podcast was just one of those things where I was like, okay, this, this has to be put on hold for a moment because I got to mm-hmm. get some stuff right. And I got to kind of get everything back in order and, um, and make some plans and then I can get back into this. And, that's a that's a tough feeling, but I think a lot of us do it, where you have these big goals and projects that you actually really like doing, but then yeah. life is can be hard, and then you have to figure out how to like bring you know circle your wagons again and then get uh-huh. back into it, and when when it feels like things are kind of spinning a little far out of out of control. So, um, so. Happily coming back to the podcast, but that's that's why there's kind of like this sudden this sudden break in the podcast. I I didn't want to be one of those podcasts that was like the graveyard of like you know ten episode podcasts, but you know here you go, <laughs> that's real life. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's talk about Christian Carey's piece. Uh, otherwise, and this is from his. Uh, you said it was from three Kenyan songs or three Kenyan settings. Three Kenyan songs. It's called. I think the the cycle is called Kenyan songs, because they're texts by Jane Kenyon, who's a wonderful, wonderful uh-huh. poet. And this is the second one uh, of the three songs in the cycle. And uh, so Christian Christian has just been a wonderful collaborator and and mentor in my life as someone that kind of that I found I think online probably you know when I was still in Baltimore and was very very early to new music as someone that we just connected and and he invited me up to sing his pieces I and would send me things when I was looking for something and I would just try and perform them as often as possible and it's really important I think to remember those people that you've been doing this journey with for quite a while and mm-hmm. yeah. and Christian writes beautiful vocal music, so I really like I really like getting to perform them whenever I can. <laughs> and this mm-hmm. is one he's written 
uh, Kenyan songs, both as voice and cello, as well as voice and piano. So I'm pretty sure this is a voice and piano version of this. And um, oh nope, it's it's the voice and cello. It is. Oh yes. Okay, sorry. Yeah. So I I was like I don't remember which one I sent. <laughs> like <laughs> so the voice and cello version, and they're all they're all beautiful in their own ways because of like how one of my favorite things is about tuning with different instruments and like finding that magical tuning blend that you can get with the voice and different instruments, and so getting to sing the same piece with different collaborating instruments has that beautiful opportunity where you can like really find your, um, your blend and, and make Mm -hmm. all of those partials just like pop. (laughs) Yeah. Um, so this, this particular piece is called otherwise from the Kenyan songs. And who's the cellist that you are performing with on this? I think this might've been Natalie Spehar. Good. So this is otherwise by Christian Carey.
Let's look at this last piece for Unaccompanied Voice by Tony Manfredonia called Prairie Dawn. And you premiered this work. Was this work written specifically for you? It was, yes. So Tony originally yeah. uh, contacted Lisa Neer, who runs the One Voice Project, where she she commissions solo unaccompanied voice pieces. And she's mm-hmm. also a fantastic composer and a mezzo-soprano. And she lives in Iowa City, or near Iowa City, actually. And, and so we're not so far away from each other, which is really nice because there's not that many new music people in Iowa um, that I, you know, that we kind of find, find each other and all gravitate sure. towards that. And uh, with Lisa, she was going, I think she was doing her dissertation at the time that Tony had contacted her. And she was like, I'd really love to do this, but I can't, I can't take it on right now. And she said, she passed it along to me and she said, Hey, I think Tony would, would write a really great piece. Are you interested in this? And I said, of course, <laughs> you know? Mm-hmm. So, and then Tony and I started this collaboration together and he wrote this piece that I really, really love called Prairie Dawn that's based off of the poetry of Willa Cather, who is originally from Nebraska. And I think that there's, you know, we have these uh, Midwestern elements that I was saying that there's something about being Midwestern that I really um, align with as a person. (laughs) Uh And I really like her poetry for that reason, because it really speaks to that side. Would you be willing to write it on one of her poems? And he was like, of course, that sounds great. And the way that he set the text of this piece, I think is so thoughtful and really gets at what I was hoping to find in the text. And Mm -hmm. what you'll notice in the text of this piece is that Willa Cather is really talking about the fact that we have this nostalgia for home that's irreplaceable. You can never, even if you go back to a place in which you've called home it's never the same as it once was and you cannot recapture Mm -hmm. that feeling and at times that can be um that can be painful that can be like heart heart sickening in a certain way but it can also be very um inspiring for you to move forward and motivating so that you kind of continue to make those places wherever you go that and you start to realize that home is is that place where you currently are and yeah. and I think that that's really special in this piece. And Tony set this in such a way that, you know, it's really like explores all of this. It's very rangy. So it's like it explores a large range for the voice. But there's all of these really tender, quiet moments where I get to elongate uh, a consonant again. <laughs> Maybe this is one of my tropes mm-hmm. as a singer. <laughs> um, and... And it creates, even though it's just one voice, solo unaccompanied voice, you have this this chance to create a very evocative sound world. We say it's unaccompanied, but the recording we'll, we will hear does have kind of an accompaniment. And it's kind of like a nature sounds background track. So is that also done in performance or is that just added for this recording? It, it's actually real. Um, I, this recording comes from a site specific performance that I did this last summer. And and so I really dig this recording because of it. And (laughs) like, so I was asked to do this site specific performance at the Fossil Gorge, the Devonian Fossil Gorge near Iowa City this last summer. And I programmed this piece along with what we were doing. And so we were in a fossil gorge, like where the where the stream would run down this this bank, 
And it created this very natural amphitheater. And the people that were coming to listen brought their camp chairs and set up like right there on the rocks. And to my left was this grassy like riverbank area with all these trees. And while I'm performing, you start to hear like the – you start to hear – all of these frogs and other, you know, um, like crickets and things like that. And while I'm performing, there was like a deer like wandering down this grassy bank. And I was like, well, this is just amazing. (laughs) I mean, it's just a really memorable experience. And I, I think that I, I mean, I couldn't have planned it better. I couldn't have even like added that as a track later with that in mind. It just worked out so well to kind of be in that setting that I think of when I read this poem and uh-huh. perform it in a way with the sounds that were naturally happening that kind of evoke that place to me. And so I think it's just incredible. Well, let's hear it. This is <laughs> Prairie Dawn by Tony Manfredonia.
So we'll we'll move to the last question, uh, something that I ask all the composers or performers or artists who come on. Uh, how did you come to music as something that you wanted to pursue for your life? As probably a lot of people do, I grew up in a very music and theater focused family, so it wasn't scary to be, you know, it wasn't uh, against the norm to be involved, like heavily involved in music and theater growing up. And so... In high school, I thought that I wanted to be a high school choir director. I thought that was my real calling in life. And I had a voice teacher, Renee Root, who asked me once during during lessons where she said, well, what do you want to do You know, when you go to college? And I said, oh, okay, well, definitely I'm going to be a high school choir director. That's pretty much it. And she was like – she goes straight up to me. She goes, Megan, well, have you, have you ever thought about performing? And I'm like, oh, you know, hand on forehead, like, I don't know. Do you think I could, Renee? And she's like, and she looks at me and she goes, I think you'd be fine. (laughs) (laughs) And from that moment, I was just kind of gripped with this, this idea that somebody said that I could, that somebody Mm. that I valued, somebody's opinion that I valued so deeply as like a second mother to me was like that she said that you could have that in your life was all I needed was all the permission I needed to just be like, this is happening. It may happen in the longest possible, like (laughs) longest possible way, (laughs) but it's happening. And, and I never forgot that in a way that said how you share with other people, how you see them and how you see their potential can be life altering. And so as a teacher, as a performer, what I, when I tell people that I see in them the way that they want to be seen is, is incredibly important and not to be a person that tells them that they can't, they can't be seen the way they want to be seen. And even if it's not right now, it's there in the future because we all make our own, you know, we even make our own plans, we make our own futures. And, and that, was just so such a life changing point to hear somebody say you can do this even though nobody around you you know does it you know everybody around you is a teacher everybody around you you know um is in nonprofits great so it feels like you can do it but you're going to have to at some point give up the dream and go do something else or go work around your dream rather than mm-hmm. being able to continue going straight at it and making your path, whatever you want to make it. Um, so I, I, yeah, I, 
I'm incredibly grateful to her for saying, you know, have you ever thought about this? And that just kind of triggered me. So whenever I hear people whose opinions I very, very deeply value say, have you ever thought about, I'm immediately like, tell me more. <laughs> like, because, you know, it's, it's that how other people see you sometimes gives you the permission to see yourself in a new light and to, and to claim claim the ambitions and claim the dreams that you that you really want so Mm -hmm. it's important (laughs) that's awesome so uh before we before we leave here can you tell listeners uh where they can find you online and where they can connect with you sure so my singing life is housed at meganenen.com so m-e-g-a-n-i-h-n-e-n.com my music business writing and consulting and stuff like that is housed at SybaritikSinger.com. So Sybaritic is S-Y-B-A-R-I-T-I-C, Sybaritic Singer. Sybaritic just means loving of luxury and pleasure. So I like mm-hmm. I liked that a lot. And then um, a lot of people, you know, Twitter is such an amazing new music community. That So a lot of people find me on Twitter at Mezzo Enen, M-E-Z-Z-O. I-H-N-E-N. And, you know, I'm on Facebook and Instagram and all that good stuff. So, you know, connect with me online. go to Twitter because you're you're pretty active on Twitter. Yeah, Twitter is definitely like my most active place. (laughs) Well, this was a lot of fun. Thank you so much for doing this, Megan. This is such a pleasure. Thank you. Anytime. I love having these kinds of conversations. (laughs) Thanks for listening. As always, if you want to find out more about adjective new music or lexical tones, please go to our website, www.adjectivenewmusic.com.